Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Nicole Dorsey, a writer and director who established herself with a couple of really powerful short films, Dennis and Arlo Alone, before making her feature debut at TIFF in 2019 with Black Conflux, a drama starring Ellen Ballantyne and Ryan McDonald as two young people in 1987 Newfoundland on a collision course with one another. It's really good, and it was supposed to be released last spring, and in advance of that, Nicole and I recorded the episode you're about to hear. Together. In a studio. Those were the days. Anyway, Nicole picked Smooth Talk, Joyce Chopra's 1985 adaptation of a Joyce Carol Oates story about a teenage girl in a small town who has an encounter with an older guy one summer afternoon. Laura Dern plays the girl, Treat Williams plays the guy, and I would argue that this is some of the best work either of them ever did. Chopra just introduces us to the world and plants us down with these characters as they move towards their own inevitable collision, and all we can do is wait. It's pretty tremendous. And it's coming out on a Criterion edition later this month, so it's finally going to get the credit it deserves. This is someone else's movie. So I had actually written a first draft of Black Conflux and uh, was kind of working on the Jackie character. And I did this um, sort of development program out West. And so one of the participants had suggested like, oh, this is reminiscent of this movie. Have you seen it? Which I hadn't. Okay. So immediately, you know, hustled back to the hotel and uh, and found it online because I couldn't find it anywhere else. I was going to say, it has sort of disappeared. It's come back recently. Uh, Olive Films has put out a Blu-ray just like last year, I think. Yeah, it's... But it was in, gone for years. It's an incredible film. It um, won the Sundance Jury Prize in 86. I think it really boosted Laura Dern's career at that time. And when I saw it, it was... I loved that it didn't follow a traditional story arc, especially with um, with Arnold Friend, this antagonist within the film. He doesn't even come in till No, it's an hour. Yeah. yeah, he's in the very... I mean, you see him for a brief moment, and then he doesn't come in till the end. And I just love this untraditional way of making a film and also how spot on, even though it was 86, when I was a teen in the 90s, like spending my time at the mall, searching for boys, putting on the outfits, feeling the sort of power that you have with this new, you know, physical body that you've grown into um, while simultaneously feeling vulnerable and ashamed by it. Uh, it just hit on all those points. So uh, it felt like the best film to kind of go for. It does Definitely have echoes, I think, in, in Black yeah. Conflux. I mean, when you picked it, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. But to find out you hadn't actually seen it like when you were much— it feels like something that's been rattling around for a long, long time yeah. inside Black Conflux. That's sort of the approach to—or the, the film's perspective on the predatory man who, yeah. who isn't really—I mean, he thinks he is, but he's— He's so transparent in in black conflicts yeah. that we read right through him, and we see the desperation and the, the kind of the the insecurity. Um, what Treat Williams is doing in in Smooth Talk is projecting past that, but you know the idea that he's all front is really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, to me. So that was the parallel that I struck, and also, of course, they're both about young women who, as you say, don't really know what to do with themselves yet. Yeah. Not, not sexually, but just in all directions. Yeah. It's just this really important search for identity. 
um, that it means everything to sort of find your place in the world. Um, and yeah, the shift between, I guess, girlhood into womanhood as well. And with, you know, Treat Williams' character, you don't actually see his side of the story. He's so peculiar, especially yeah. that first scene when he's standing at his car by the burger joint and just points at her. Yeah. <laughs> it's this ownership, you know, this taking of, I will choose the young creature of my desires and she will be mine. And that's kind of all you know about him. Yeah, he... Um, I want to say it was Ebert. I might be wrong, but I think it was Roger Ebert who said he's an inevitability. He right. just he, he manifests yes. the same way the Hitcher does in the Rutger Hauer movie. Yeah, like it doesn't matter what street you go down, he'll be on it. That that weird mile marker for coming of age mm-hmm. that she will she she's going to encounter it. Connie can't get away from it. Yeah, and the fact that he shows up. And, yeah, he does his weird little Terminator thing, which which is supposed to be a James Dean thing, but really doesn't read that way because Treat Williams looks so different from James Dean. Yeah. But then you go back to her house and you see the James Dean stuff all over her bedroom, and it's like, did she make him? Did she conjure him? Right, right. Is this it? Is this like this is a tulpa that's just arrived to come after her? Because there is a movie where that happens. I mean, that could – the potential is there in that first – half hour. Yeah, I mean, kind of how the whole end plays out. I actually learned something interesting about the ending, which I guess whatever, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um at the end of of Smooth Talk when she gets in the car with him, Laura Dern at that time did not believe that a rape occurred. She believed that she had just gotten in the car and gone for a drive. But it wasn't until late years later when she was doing this HBO show that her, I guess, younger character self had oh, gone through. the truth from yeah. last year, yeah. Where she actually used smooth talk as sort of her sense memory work um, to play this new character. And it was only as an adult when she revisited her time on smooth talk that she realized, hey, this character actually, yeah, was most definitely um, raped during this point. But... It was almost both as an actor and as a character, she had to believe in that moment that they just went for a drive yeah. at the end of the film to just survive the moment, um, which I guess she was so invested. There was just this meshing into character that happened. So I thought that was super interesting. It is. It's fascinating. And the – the um well, you know about the Joyce Carol Oates short story yes. and, and Oates' own feelings on Smooth Talk? Yes. Because she wrote this amazing essay right then in 1985 or 6, whenever the film was, was arriving. Yes, that it um, was based on. Well, she she wrote a short story in the 60s. Yeah, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Yes. And then in 1985 or 6, she wrote an essay about the film and what it changes and how it plays for her. And oh, she, I hadn't read the essay. Oh, yeah, it's it's. I found it through the Wikipedia page. Weirdly enough, it's linked oh. at the bottom. They don't draw attention to it, but it's you can find it. I'll, I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah, and it's this fascinating meditation on Oates realizing. First, she starts by saying that the short story was based on a Bob Dylan song. Uh, it's all over now. Baby Blue was in her head when she wrote it, and she yeah. couldn't get away from that. And so, having it be replaced by James Taylor in the in the film is. Just a choice she's still reckoning with, I suppose, oh. I, I would say. But she also talks about the ending being um, completely different in her mind where she originally envisioned it as the, – the title for the short story was originally called Death and the Maiden. And right. it was about this 
child's destruction. She becomes a woman, and that's the end of her life. Right. The rape is her death. And the story is based on an actual serial killer. Yeah, the three murders in Arizona. Right. Yeah. And this guy would do that. He would show up and just insinuate himself into crowds of teenagers. Yeah. And drive girls around. He didn't kill them all, but some he did. Yeah. And the teens, the thing that fascinated Oates, she said, was that the teens protected him. They didn't want to give him up. That He was just this nice guy that they all knew. Right. And it took a while for them to come around to the idea that, oh, no, he's also killing us. Yeah. And this, the push and pull of attraction and fatalism and nihilism and all of that that was wrapped up in the story is in the, is very clearly in the film. But what Oates was uh, so impressed with was that, no, of course she has to survive because it's about her learning to cope with it for the rest of her life. It's not yeah. enough to just end with her getting in the car. You have to see what happens. Yeah. Because it's a movie and we've spent enough time with this character that now we know her and we, you know, Laura Dern has a face, right? Like yeah. you can't just abstracted in, in print. Yeah. And so it's this really interesting kind of internal wrestling match that the author has with her own intentions in the story and what Chopra and the screenwriter did mm-hmm. and how I think in the end Oates is actually comfortable with, with what worked out even though it's right. a complete betrayal of her concept. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Like that end moment after she walks back in the house and her family's come home from the barbecue and she dances again. Mm-hmm. It's this this change that happens forever. She's forever somebody different, but uh, almost like a strange rebirth in a way. She, she clearly is going to have a new relationship with her family yeah. from that point onward. Um, and this dance, there's a new weight to her. We see her dance throughout the whole film, but at that moment, we see it in a different light. She's much more slow and deliberate in her motions and her movements. And I was trying to figure out, is that because she's injured? But I don't think it is. I think it's just who she is now. I just think that there's, I don't know. I think as we grow as adults, we accumulate trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that in so many ways that adds weight to our shoulders. And to me, that's what she has at the end of the film is just this weight. Um... And also a knowledge, this new knowledge um, going forward because she goes through her day-to-day with these outfits and, oh, my God, these boys are staring at me and they're whispering songs into my ear and it's exciting and yada, yada. And then all of a sudden she's confronted with this other side. And it can be such a fine line too. You know, um, Arnold Friend is... He's be, he's coming on to her, not too dissimilar to the other boys within the film, but there's just this aura of this menacing aura around him. And then, of course, when he comes to the house, the things he says, like the super super creepy line <laughs> of "I'm your lover," <laughs> yeah. um, making a very presumptuous jump. Yes, yeah, yeah. It it shifts, and I I think that's really shocking for young women like in in talking about my own film I've been giving this anecdote when I was um like a young teen I must have been like 14 years old and I had bought these Roxy board shorts that were super short and I was extremely excited about them and I felt like Wonder Woman I felt super powerful and I think that's when you realize your physicality does have power 
it's something so new and exciting. And so I thought I'm going to walk to my friend's house and was walking along the street, kind of strutting it, feeling good. And this trucker pulled over and said some lewd comment uh, out the window. And I just ran my friend's house after that, never wore the shirt, like the shorts again. And it was this real, like this horror this that I was vulnerable and also this shame that I'd put myself out there right. um, and that this guilt, all these, you know, conflicting emotions from like the moments before. Yeah, you uh, were literally innocent of all of that and then yeah, it just came down. Exactly. And um, yeah, I think it's this realization for many women and I really hope with all the conversations happening now, teenage girls are, are maybe more able to grow up you know, and be exploratory and figure themselves out without a menacing world around them. I don't know, but I I hope. But um, I felt like the film, like Smooth Talk, explored that so perfectly. And another film that did it too was It Felt Like Love by Liza Hittman. Oh, yeah. Um, Which doesn't get talked about nearly at uh, all anymore, right? That film's incredible. Both of them, Smooth Talk and It Felt Like Love, were great films for me to watch. Um, cause it just encapsulated that female experience in such a universal way. Um, for me, I, I think, yeah. I don't want to focus entirely on Tree Williams cause yeah. that's a guy thing to do, but <laughs> he's also so magnetic and fascinating. It's a really interesting performance. Yeah. But when you were talking about the way that Connie and her friends respond to the, the boys in the, in the mall and the boys in, in yeah. the burger shop, I realized he synthesizes both the menace of the muscle heads, those two guys who they clearly reject. They don't want anything to do with those guys, and they are coming on hard. Yeah. And it's creepy and kind of, you know, it, I mean, it's it's almost funny now because they've got the 80s hair and the, and the <laughs> little spaghetti string muscle shirts, and they look like caricatures. But yeah. to come right up against them in a small, you know, in a small town, that's going to be threatening and weird and uncomfortable. Yeah. And Arnold Friend has their language yeah. but not their posture. And so he creates this weird balance of the things she's attracted to, which are nice boys with good cars and, and you know, they're caring and confident. He says all the right things right up until he turns horrifying yeah, and menacing and threatening. And then these guys who are just menacing and threatening. And yeah. again, it makes me wonder if she made him up. Like if, if she's, not that she's hallucinated it, but that he is responding to her specifically. And it's just such a... Yeah. A precise choice on everybody's part. Well, I don't think it's his first time oh, yeah, doing no. this at all. So, you know, I really look at it of how psychological this guy is in his approach mm-hmm. to young girls and preying upon those vulnerabilities and that confusion and that naivete as well. Like the way in which he talks I think it takes Connie aback for a second of being like, wait, did I put the wrong messages out there? He plays into all her insecurities about how she's presented herself, especially, you know, she's already feeling, um, my mom thinks I'm essentially a slut (laughs) and who's going to get pregnant and no one respects me. My sister is the one that everyone loves, not me. So... She really places a lot of her value on her looks and and the attention she receives. So I think he's 
knowing those vulnerabilities in, in girls, he's just preying upon it. He's very good at that. He's very manipulative. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's also not like a mouth-breathing gross guy. Yeah. <laughs> he does have this nice car. He says a couple things, even in the beginning, like she is kind of playing with him when he first shows up at her house yep. um, until he gets quite weird. Um yeah, and then she retreats into the home and he just won't leave, which is even though – and he says it, right? At one point, why are you locking the screen door? It's a screen door. Yeah. And just that logic that he uses on her is so disturbing. Yeah. He never raises his voice to her. He raises his voice to the guy in the car, to Ellie, a couple mm-hmm. of times. But mm-hmm. only when he's <laughs> saying horrifying things like, do you want me to cut the phone line? Am I supposed to cut the phone line now? Which is so dis- – I'd forgotten that. I hadn't seen the movie in about – 30 years, I guess. Yeah. And I remember just watching it the other night and and kind of just like a physical shock at that point. Oh, my God, that's right. I forgot about that. Oh, Jesus Christ. I forgot about that part, too. It's so horrible because it says everything about what's going to happen. Yeah. The plan is there and everything. And this isn't their first rodeo and they're just going to – she's just the latest conquest of whatever horrible thing that they're doing. And having a partner, and the, the partner was in the story as well. It's mm-hmm. um, apparently the, the real person just worked alone. But the partner makes it worse, right? Because there's some sense of organization and consent involved in this. Like they know what they're going to do because they've done this before. It's like, I don't know, it's an in cold blood situation. Yeah. Where if they show up, you're probably dead. Yeah. And in the, in the way that he spins on a dime when he's talking to Ellie versus when he's talking to Connie. The true color is coming out yeah, in that moment. Yeah, it's really terrifying. Yeah. And Dern as Connie is, I always kind of wondered, I guess I saw this and um, Blue Velvet so close together that oh, it, right. it sort of blurred together in my mind. But I always yeah. wondered how Dern got cast in Blue Velvet because you have to know she can go to the darker places mm-hmm. for that role. To, mm-hmm. to play that role in, in the Lynch film. And then I thought, oh, well, Lynch saw this. There's, like, there's no question in my mind that this is how she got cast because yeah. there's a perfect straight line between one and the other. She's so good at conveying innocence and warmth mm-hmm. uh, with her friends and the way that, like, even the way when after they run into the Muscleheads, they run into a luggage store and just laugh themselves stupid over it because they're getting the adrenaline out. Yeah. But it's so childish. You really don't understand what's just happened. You don't know why this is happening or how it's happening. You just know that a funny thing has happened because that's the only way you can process it. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that Laura Dern has such life in her. She's so present in the moment. And just reflecting on my own experience growing up because I, I was that girl with her girlfriends at the mall and trying to pick up. And then, yeah, you stumble across these older guys and the experience is just different yeah there's just there's a danger present but you can't articulate quite what it is but you know your your fight or flight is raised and you got to get out of there um and then you release you know oh we got out unscathed you let it go you laugh so i think she just channels the real experience so well and i know with um Chopper, the director, she had made that documentary um, where she followed three girls for six months and used a lot of the scenes from that documentary um, for Smooth Talk. To oh, as re- references? Yeah, as references and playing them out. Um, I haven't seen the doc, I'm assuming, just from what I read. 
it's in reference to probably the dancing and the talking to the mirror and figuring out what to say because uh, that's just so true. It's so true to life. I mean, the amount of times I would try on all these outfits and dance and sing in the mirror and, um, you know, yeah, practice your your pickup lines that you're never going to use. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> the, the idea that they would even know not what's expected of them. Well, I guess it was 1985, what's expected of them. Yeah. As small-town girls at a, har- as a, at a hamburger stand. Yeah. You, you, yeah, the narrative creates itself, right? But then you become trapped in it. Yeah. So you're performing and you're play acting and then all of a sudden you're in a car with a boy who really wants to kiss you and then really wants to grab you and Yeah. And just that that little encounter early on. I'm 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 also so impressed with how strangely paced it is. You you mentioned this early on, but I think part of it was yeah. that they knew they were shooting for PBS because it was going to be an American Playhouse co-production. Right. Yeah. And the the need to pace is maybe less so because it doesn't feel like any other movie from the 80s. The music kind of makes it feel like one, but yeah. there's this weird sense of displaced time as though it's taking place in the 60s or 70s as well as in the present day. Yeah. James Taylor's music is softer and makes me think of the 70s and the cars are all older and yeah. it doesn't look, there's no neon, nothing shiny. Yeah. The music on the radio is modern for, yeah. for 1985. But other than that, it's... You know, Back to the Future is coming out the same year, and it's as, it's as commercial and glossy as you can picture a teenager's film. And this is just, it's dirty, and there's, you know, crap on the cars, and yeah. the theater looks terrible, and nothing is nothing is clean the way we associate the 80s yeah. movies with. And you spend all this time just sitting in it, just watching her. She's not going to school. She doesn't have anything to do. She kind of has to paint the house with her mom, but she doesn't want to. And you just watch her resist everything for a full hour. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, is this, like, is this what petulant teenagehood is? Are we supposed to believe that this is yeah. all the stuff that's going to be shattered? Because as soon as Arnold shows up, it's all real. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's moment to moment, heart in the mouth kind of terror mm-hmm. once that kicks in. But then there's only... 20 minutes left in the film. It's just so concentrated. The, yeah. The longer at the beginning is really striking. And I can't yeah. think of another filmmaker, even at the time, who just didn't feel the need to rush through story that way. Yeah, I can't think so, think of anything either. I, and, and again, that's exactly what struck me about the film is this sort of disposal of traditional narrative arc. Yeah. And really exploring, because it's almost, I guess you could compare it to maybe a documentary in that way of just, um, you know, this fly on the wall sort of voyeur watching this <laughs> this girl just lean on the walls of her house yeah. and her mom, this sort of bickering relationship, very teenage angsty with her mom and then the relationship with all the girls and then especially, uh, is it Jill, the one that gets left out? Yeah. The sort of innocent. She just knows what she doesn't want to do. Yeah. like I mean, uh, it speaks her own mind in a way. All of that in itself is its own film that's so relatable. Um, but then, yeah, to tack on this, this sort of impending occurrence that's going to happen. I, I think it's kind of... Great. I'm curious what the funders thought. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm curious uh, when they showed their rough cut, what the expectations had been, how much free reign um, the director had. It's all very curious. Yeah, it's almost as though, I mean, it's you shoot her from the back of the head when she's walking, and it's a Dardenne film. Yeah, it's, it's a really simple, experiential, yeah, relationship 
to the character that we have. We are basically yeah. just accompanying her wherever she drifts. She's in every scene. Yeah. And somehow gets second billing to Williams, who I suppose he was already a bigger star, I guess. But I just – she – Laura Dern is so perfect because, yeah. yeah, she has the warmth. She has this – we are naturally – concerned for her yeah but she also has that she's huge like she's taller than everybody else she's taller than her big sister and she's lanky and she moves strangely yeah. you know the first time you see her dance in public um when treat was watching her <laughs> through the window and she's got these long lanky arms yeah. and she's kind of awkward and young and the whole film is shot so simply like that's the other thing it's a lot of like lock-off shots or just it's a very simple coverage um and sometimes these sweeping scores as well like the scene with her sister um when her sister comes back into the into the bedroom um to I guess sympathize and then uh Connie ends up basically saying like you don't have any boys that like you and I do can you imagine what it's like yeah that's um, right she goes from being incredibly defensive like don't don't tell her i was crying yeah to attacking her which feels like a teenager moment to me i mean it's just <gasps> that mercurial emotional explosion absolutely and not realizing like how rude and self-centered she's being towards her sister who's come in to have a moment with her but this really emotive score continues even after her sister calls her a bitch um, which is just such a turn in that scene but yet the music does not reflect that turn at all um there's a lot of really interesting choices in the film like that we're like okay the music isn't really telling us how to feel because the scene's already shifted um i found all those very curious uh, in Again, because it's not a traditional film, yet these these scores tend to lean more on the traditional side, sure. except for the diegetic music, which is, you know, fun and poppy and yeah. modern. You get that wonderful moment where they all connect in the James Taylor track, but they don't know it because they're in separate rooms. Yes. They can just hear it. Yeah. All three women in the house sing kind of mouth along or sing along and, and um, yeah. The mom sing, actually sings and mentions that she likes the the key change or the way he does that vibrato. I don't even yeah. know how to describe it. But that little moment is showing us who they all are and that they're much more – they have more in common. They're much more similar than they know. But they can't communicate it to each other. And they don't know this is happening, which is so tragic. And then you watch them just go right back to fighting again as soon as the song stops. Yeah, and the same again like when they're outside painting and – Connie comes in to finally paint with her mom, does the worst job ever. I'm like, what are you doing? That's not painting. Um, Sits down and you, for once now, we're going to have like this lovely bonding moment between mother and daughter. Um, (laughs) And which we all realize it's because they're so similar that they're not getting along. And then it erupts, obviously, when the mom goes to hug her, which again is just such an angsty teen experience. Also, did not realize um, that that was what's her name, Mary Kay Place. Yeah, Mary Kay Place from the Big Chill. I didn't even realize it until after I had uh, on my previous watchings until this time and had like this light bulb moment of being like, "Oh my god, look how young she is here!" For me, it was not recognizing Elizabeth Barrage till this time around. She's oh. the female lead in Amadeus, like yeah. the year before, and here she is in this tiny little film, which obviously they shot maybe before Amadeus came out or yeah. before anybody knew what it was going to be. 
but she's so good and she's so completely different. Yeah. You know, no big hair, no big dresses. It's just it's just simple, unadorned human being stuff. Mm-hmm. And she just disappears. And William Ragsdale from Fright Night kind of matching Duren's little speech thing. They have they both have kind of a complimentary lisp, which is sort of sweet. Right, that's the dad, the, right? No, the the boy who picks her up at the very oh. beginning. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the dad is Levon Helm from the band. Okay, so the dad... It's a weird performance. It's a weird performance. Yeah. It's At first, I'm like, wait, is this just him, or <laughs> is, is this some sort of direction? Uh, I think both. Yeah. Like, I think she clearly... Because ca- he wasn't doing a lot of acting, but she clearly cast him to be this guy. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to be... I mean, it's it's great... In that he doesn't seem to be connected to anyone else, his entire family. He comes in, he sits down. At one point, he's sort of, I mean, at dinner, they're all yeah. communicating, but he's fighting in a kind of a fun way with everybody, and it's not fun. Yeah, I mean, he does very much project this this dad who's out of touch emotionally with the entire family. Yeah, like in we, the 50s, he'd be the perfect Midwestern authority figure. Totally. Just, I'm dad, I'm here for the fun. Otherwise, I'm out working. I'm not really connected to anything that's going on in your personal life. Um, but I will say, I can see something's up with you and your mom. Just stop it. Let's yeah. not investigate it. Let's just stop it. So in in that sort of disconnected way, he makes sense to me. Yeah. But then other times I'm like, oh, yeah, you could have tightened up the edit on him a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I kind of like the way he just doesn't seem to have any perspective on anything. That yeah. He just sort of floats through his own life. And there's a whole story there and how she hasn't been given a strong male figure right. to imprint on. This is just me filling in the blanks. But I yeah. think part of, the, part of the Oates story is very clearly indicating that Connie is going to sacrifice herself to protect her family because, you know, by going with Arnold, she right, saves He's not going to set actually, the house on fire. Yeah, he threatens their lives much more explicitly in the short, in the short story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there in the film. But, you know, it's much more of an, of an obvious motivator, I guess, mm-hmm. in, in, in the text. And I think part of that is that now we understand that this guy's not going to save them, that right. this father— isn't going to be the hero that shows up at the end of a lot of these movies and rallies and saves the, saves the kids from the monster. Like, that's yeah. not going to happen if these two are in the same room. If, if Treat Williams and Levon Helm are together, Williams is just going to eat this guy. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it too, I guess. And the age difference, the fact that, that Williams, I think I looked it up and I think he was like 16 or 17 years older, but that puts him into, than, than Laura Dern, yeah. but that puts him into his early 30s. And that's at least 10 years younger than Levon Helm. Yeah. And he's bigger and beefier and there's just like, it's an instant contrast that just sort of floats there. Mm-hmm. One more threat, one one less obstacle. Mm-hmm. And poor Levon Helm is just walking around getting the barbecue stuff and <laughs> completely and oblivious. That playing this, golf yeah. and whatever else he's doing. Yeah. And, he, yeah. and he, he gets, he and Connie come home and they're getting ready or sorry, the family comes home and Connie doesn't want to go with them to the barbecue, and he's like, fine. He has no idea the apocalypse is coming. Yeah. And it's just this sort of tunnel vision, um, archetypal stereotype of a man, I yeah. guess, of a family yeah. man, where yeah. it's like, you know what? I got my hearth. I Nothing else is going to bother me, but there's a storm coming. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, all, all those choices, because Levon Helm in a movie is a weird call anyway. It's just, it's a strange pull. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's super strange. And even the relationship between, like, uh, him and the mom, you know, when he, I guess, yeah, filling in that role, when when they get dinner and she puts down tuna fish. Yeah. And he's uh, questioning the tuna fish, and obviously she's been the one working at home all day trying to prepare this nice meal, and it's so, yeah. It's all of it's all of relate all relationship dynamics between everyone within the family that's so real. Yeah. So grounded. It, it, yeah. He's hostile to her choices in a way that even he doesn't understand. It's just like you're not supposed to have tuna fish for dinner. Yeah. And I don't know. She seems to have a pretty good argument that it's hot out and it's a nice cool salad. Yeah. And also just the the respect for what it's like to be the homemaker Mm -hmm. as well, Um, that you do nothing and I do everything, which is just a monetary difference. Uh, Obviously, she works at the house just as many hours and also doing physical labor, um, whereas we don't even know where he works, where he goes most of the day. The only time we see him come home is he has golf clubs, so not even sure his business um, yeah, and it's it's weirdly elliptical about a lot of that stuff too. I mean, um, uh, Connie's sister is working at the school, yeah. but it's summer, so there's what no is job. she doing? Like they're, they're, <laughs> they they reference her conflict. Yeah, her friends say, "Isn't it going to be weird?" Or is it already? Is it weird to have her at the school? She said, "We just don't talk." It's just a little throwaway line on the way to the mall about how right. weird it is to be in the same school where your sister is either a teacher or an administrator or something. something. But we never see it because it's not important. Like mm-hmm. it's just – it's only what's in front of Connie from moment to moment that we experience. And so we have to build these relationships. We're inferring all this stuff about yeah. everybody else. But, yeah, we never find out where her father works or what he does. Does yeah. he have a briefcase at one point? I don't think he does, right? I don't remember seeing a briefcase. Yeah. Maybe, but I don't He just gets the remember. golf clubs out of the trunk. Yeah. And then the charcoal. Yeah. Like he's purely a leisure guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a mystery to her as much as he is to us, and her mom is there all the time, so of course she hates her because, you know, that's the conflict. And her sister has to be perceived as an enemy because that's the only way that you can process a big sister Yeah, when you're that age, I guess. Yeah, well, and especially with the favoritism, mm, right? Yeah, there is, there's clearly something there. Yeah, yeah, when constantly being compared to somebody. And she says some line of, not like I'm always the failure. Or, she says something when she's lying back on her. Yeah, I can never do anything right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, oh my God, that choice line from her mom, uh, the uh, – Trash daydreams. What is that line yeah. that she says to her? I mean, yeah. When I look into your eyes, all I see are trashy daydreams. That's yeah. what she says. Which oh my! Is such a projection and so cruel. So, so unbelievably cruel. I mean, you know. But I feel for both sides because I look at the mom from the mom's perspective. Yeah, Connie's a brat. You know, she won't. She won't partake in the house chores. She won't tidy up after herself. Um, she wants all these things as if it's her right to be driven everywhere and to do everything. She doesn't even pick up. She goes to the mall for like, well, she's lying. She's on the beach, but she doesn't pick up the things. Like I, I get it a bit on that one side, but then the times when Connie does open up and to have that connection with her mom, uh, I mean, her mom just throws such choice words her way that just that constant feeling of rejection I mean, I guess it's kind of labeling theory in a way. If you're just constantly told since the time you're a child that you are going to be this kind of person as you grow up, yeah. you start to grow into that person. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's 
depressing, but yeah. certainly we have we see it happen over and over again uh, in fiction and in reality. Yeah. I mean, just even the choice of somebody's name is going to send them on a specific direction. Yeah. And Connie is short for Constance, which is another kind of thing that she does oh. right? Like it's, it's just this little thing buried right. in the script where, except that she is in the end, if, if, if by constant people mean stalwart and loyal, the sacrifice that she makes is the most loyal thing she can do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that, I mean, I, I always wonder about that stuff with, with authors. Do they know this much? Do they, do they layer this stuff in? Because a friend is clearly a thing that an author comes up with. Right? Yeah. Arnold Friend, a friend. And there's a little reference in, in the Oates essay where she just throws away that Arnold cannot lie. She just says, and because he cannot lie, something, something, something. And I thought, oh, I mean, I guess not. I never really considered that he was bound to tell the truth. But he really does only ever speak his goals. And yeah. even I've got my eye on you is true. He's not flirting. He's not, there's no, there's no um, colorful uh, sort of fabulation around what he's going to do. When he finally tells her what he's going to do to her mm-hmm. when she gets in the car, mm-hmm. it's ugly. Because he isn't concealing his plans, mm-hmm. right? There's no metaphor. There's no. Um, there's no delicacy. Yeah. And Oates said she wants to keep it absolutely vague and ambiguous. That maybe he's the devil. Maybe he's her destiny. All these things are possible because mm-hmm. we're seeing it through Connie's eyes. Mm-hmm. But the the idea that he only speaks the truth and is somehow like that, it doesn't make him the purest person, but it makes him the most direct. And that's like a straight line to all the things that happen. Well, and I think that he speaks his truth because he's obviously been successful at this before. Mm. The fact that he doesn't have any palpable nerves um, towards her uh, tells me that he's very comfortable playing this position of power. And that he has learned through practice um, how to... I guess, convince or, um, I don't know, maneuver his way through the, through this situation right. to get what he wants. Yeah. It's um, rehearsed. Yeah. It's, he's, he's practiced. And he's enjoying the power. Like, I am sure that the moment outside her house is just as pleasurable for him as when he gets her in the car and drives off. They both... They both are what he wants out of the situation. He loves having that power and playing off of her too because as much as Connie is protecting her family, which I think ultimately is what takes her out of the house is this protection of the family, but there's also a guilt that comes along with this of in her own mind, my family told me this would happen. I was naive and thus this is my fault. I've brought him here, which of course isn't true. This guy's a total creep and is preying on somebody young. Um, yeah, but or she's just, a child, so everything has a reason, right? Like every there's magic, magical thinking or, or magical reasoning going on all the time. Absolutely. And I, I think, and too, growing up in a culture as well, like um, especially in the 80s, um, the victim was seen as the person at fault in so many cases. If something, if a sexual assault occurred to you and you went to the police station, the questions that were asked of you is like, okay, were you drinking? 
what were you wearing? Right. Like that's the initial questions, which is absolutely insane because it shouldn't matter. I should be able to walk down the street naked, um, you know, swinging my butt everywhere <laughs> and not be sexually assaulted. Sure. Um, so I, but when you grow up in a culture that says it's the woman's fault, it's a morality issue. Um, there's so much guilt associated with being a victim. Uh, which I think she also feels and informs her walking out and going into his car because she'll probably never say what happened to her ever. Maybe, you know, maybe when she's like 50 or something, but she will never talk about this for the years to come. Right. No, it will define her, but only to herself. Yes. Right? Like that's the, 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 the burden, the baggage, the, the emotional weight, and yeah. he'll just drive away and never think of it again. Yeah. Which, ugh, yeah, horrible. and he but he won't come after her again. Like she's done, she's soiled to him most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taken this image of virginity that he wanted to his little trophy, and he'll move on onto the next person. Um, and who knows? Might not even remember her years. Well, I don't know. These creeps tend to remember all their. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's trophies involved. It's all. It's yeah. Horrible. It's a whole um, But that's the thing that the film knows that Connie doesn't, right? Like the the, the moment he shows up at, in the driveway, mm-hmm. there's menace yeah. and tension. And the frame becomes much more level. Instead of following along loosely, it's just locked. Mm-hmm. That shot of her, that amazing shot of her sitting behind the stairs with her legs out, just sort of outstretched. Well, with her little feet popping out, which yeah, is the, the only sunlight, thing. Which makes he... you think he can see that. Don't do that. Yeah, the, like, her just... feet are the only thing he can see, these little lanky legs. Yeah. yeah. And it's so, it's such a powerful image because she's no, I mean, she's no more safe if he can't see her at all because, mm-hmm. as he's pointed out, it's a screen door and there's nothing that can stop him if he wants to come in. Mm-hmm. But even then, he respects the space. He's sort of in the doorway. He's in the threshold, standing mm-hmm. with one leg in and one leg out, just putting the idea, even though she can't see him because she's hiding behind the stairs, um, the idea is in our head that she has to come to him, which fills the, the rest of that sequence with dread. Mm-hmm. Because somehow, by that point, we know she's going to. Like that inevitability is, the title isn't, there for no reason. Smooth talk is telling us that he's going to win. Yeah. Right? That this is an inevitability. The yeah. way that Ebert said it's just the the sense of doom that follows him. Watching it the second time, I found myself much more upset yeah. than, this, than the first time through because the first time through, it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. And oh, that's Treat Williams, and we haven't seen him for a while, and then he shows up, and it becomes a thriller. But this time through, it's like, oh, no, I'm watching the last days of her innocence. I'm watching the end of this person and the start of the new person. Mm-hmm. And it just, oh, God. I, I mean, that's what I, kind of, I I love about films like that is ones that you, you know, you receive something on first viewing. But upon second viewing, there's this now prior knowledge that you have oh, yeah. to really take in so much more than you did the first time. Um and I love that because, I mean, the film could for sure be seen as this slow burn where you're just really wondering what on earth, where are we going <laughs> yeah. with this? Um, but I, I mean, I find the scenes kind of as little standalone so enjoyable. Um, 
But yeah, seeing it, I think you're exactly right. This idea of like the last days of innocence. I, I wonder, I don't know if in your research you saw anything, but I wonder how it was marketed. It was really strangely marketed. There wasn't a lot of, I, there is no trailer on the DVD, so I still haven't seen one. I don't right. know how you sell this to people. Uh, but the poster, if you remember, was yeah. was just sort of Laura Dern in a sundress with Treat Williams behind her, which is a position that's never in the film. There's no relationship like that in the movie itself. Yeah. He's always coming at her. He's never behind her. And the, the image, which I'm pretty sure was a publicity shot that was then turned into an illustration. I don't think it was mm. drawn from nothing. Uh, the image implies that the two of them are comfortable together. They have knowledge of each other, whatever's going on. And maybe it's supposed to kind of go off in our heads afterwards mm. as a post facto image. But yeah, that's the only bit of marketing I remember. Oh, and another shot of her. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of a different movie that Laura Dern was in around the same time. Just, there was a shot of her seated in a dress with one leg up and one sort of one leg arched and one leg out sitting. No, that's not right. That's from Wild at Heart. Yeah, I was like, I think that might be yeah, Wild at Heart. I'm conflating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a curious film. I, I'm glad if it's making a comeback because I, I think that it's great. Also, just so nice. I'm, I've... I guess I got into Laura Dern. Well, as a child, I got into Laura Dern with Jurassic Park. Sure, I was going to uh, say. <laughs> I, was... And I remember thinking, Laura Dern is in this? I know. What? But it's a studio picture. She doesn't do those. And then you realize, no, they just needed real actors to carry the effects. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, and that was the first time I had seen her. Sure. Um, and then after that is when I went back and started watching Lynch films. Um you know, after after leaving the suburbs of my hometown and, and learning a bit more about cinema outside of big Hollywood uh, studio pictures. Sure, yeah. uh, and then, of course, seeing Wild at Heart was, like, mind-blowing um, to watch her perform in that. And just this, you know, I don't know how many people can match Nicolas Cage. He's kind of a, a whirlwind of yep. his own. But to have her there beside him, matching his energy, but also still being real and grounded. Yeah. Well, she does it with grief, right? Like she does it yes. with pain. Like yeah. she goes just up to 11 almost immediately with him. Absolutely. When they're dancing in the car and jumping on the bed and all those things, um, it works so well. So I can definitely see that kind of jumping off point from smooth talk into doing these other pictures. Yeah. And between Wild at Heart and Jurassic Park, if I'm remembering this correctly, she made a film called Rambling Rose, which nobody remembers. No, including no. me. I don't um, know it. I want to say Martha Coolidge directed it. Okay. And it was just swallowed by distributors and it's gone away. There was a DVD way, way back. Like there, It was one of the earliest Laserdisc special editions oh, okay. that wasn't produced by Criterion, which is why it's sort of stuck in my memory because it has a commentary track and all the other great stuff. Yeah that lets you dig into the film. And it's about uh, it's about where Connie would have ended up if she hadn't met Arnold Friend. So okay. she's still too sexual and she she's um, just this this woman. I mean, it's a very reductive uh, portrayal of, of female sexuality, unfortunately, okay. but the character is perceived as basically being perpetually in heat. And so in the end, she is punished for that within the film. Oh, yes. Following the uh, more traditional horror narrative, kind sort of. of. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's more complex than that, but it is ultimately that trajectory. 
the idea of like the virgin who has is no longer a virgin is then punished. Kinda, yeah. Right. It's um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I do remember it being pretty straightforward in its depiction of those things. Right, and it's a great performance within that. She mm-hmm. is tremendously good. Uh, there was talk of an Oscar campaign. I don't think it ever happened, but that was one of those moments where you just realize, oh no, she's great for everybody. It's not just David Lynch that can get this out of her, and it's not just that she was good in Smooth Talk. She's legitimately amazing in whatever she wants to do. She's always great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually got to meet her at TIFF a few years back. What? Yeah, she was for Wild. Uh, for, oh, yeah. Her, she played Reese Witherspoon's mom in Flashbacks, which is just a, a weird casting choice that shouldn't work but absolutely does because even just their dynamic, one tiny, one tall, yeah, really, really works to sell that. Because they're not that far apart in age. Right. But And Jean-Marc Ballet cuts it so that you're following the emotional beats rather than the, the logistical, like, temporal beats of the story. But she was just, she really is. Like, she hugged me at the end of the conversation. She's just the warmest, nicest person. And you think, you know, you, you spend all this time purging yourself emotionally mm-hmm. on screen mm-hmm. that you have to be, you'd have to find a peace in the mm-hmm. middle, like a way to, to, to be a normal person from day to day mm-hmm. when you're going to these highs uh, and these lows at the same time. And, yeah, she's just managed to build this fascinating career where she can do anything now. I, she shows up in Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach film, yeah. as a lawyer who is both a snake and a really nice person. Like, she's a professional snake. Yeah. But when she's talking to her client, she's just another person on the couch with a glass of wine. And it's a really, like, in the middle of this big a busy film about a couple's dissolution, she might give the most interesting performance, Mm -hmm. which is, again, just, like, way to go. Yeah, I mean, she blows my mind all the time. Even seeing Big Little Lies, um, which I just watched season two. Okay. Meryl Streep, like, how does this woman do it? I mean, every time. I know, obviously, she's won a bunch of Oscars and everyone talks about her, but she every scene she's in, she's basically a master class for acting. It's incredible. So watching all these other actors work with her, it, and, and her performance is so perfectly nuanced in season two, um, but Laura Dern, like, how she, similar to how you describe this lawyer character, how she is so empathetic and supportive of her friends, but also this, like, nasty little rich woman um, is incredible. Uh, And I don't want to give anything away, but, yeah, the relationship with her husband as well in the show um, with the betrayal that occurs is that fine line of being so desperate and so filled with rage because you've just achieved what you've wanted your whole life and now it's taken from you. Um, her playing into that rage is so incredible and fun to watch. Um, because yeah, I haven't seen season two yet. but Yeah, I mean, you know, there, I think there's been yeah. some issues with season two, which is public knowledge now. Um, but the performances are still very much there. Um and man, Meryl Streep, just to watch her in anything. And I don't know if she has fake teeth or if she's just learned a completely new way of speaking. I'm not quite sure. Either is possible for her, I would say. Yeah, who knows? But the two of them together is ah, it's amazing. Oh, good. And yeah, to get us out, um, the, the, quest, the final question on the podcast is always the same, which is, is there anything of 
smooth talk, and we kind of touched on it already, that yeah. you've, you've borrowed or used or stolen outright and incorporated into your own work. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, because it triggered my own memories, but there was a couple words from smooth talk just because I was making a period piece, and I um, I was born in the 80s, but not a teenager in the 80s. Right. Um, so I, I stole a couple phrases from the film. I stole bone. Are, are you guys going to bone? Right. I, I took that one. And I think I stole uh, Check Out Those Buns, uh, which, again, was more a period thing, but very much something that I experienced myself as a teenager, Um, but definitely took some lingo. Nice. And the whole tension of two people on a collision course with one another does sort of oh absolutely absolutely so when i saw the the film for sure that was a realization that oh you know i'm not completely writing a fresh book here um obviously i have a different take on it and i i look at both characters um kind of equally at the same time but absolutely seeing this collision course and also just seeing a film that doesn't follow this traditional arc Um, that's able to do this character-driven sort of character study um, was great to see it done successfully. They didn't use Gowan, though. They didn't use Gowan. Gowan was incredible. Best song ever. (laughs) I have to say that, and it's a single take, right, which is even more disturbing in in that moment in your film. The use of Gowan, I mean, everybody was sort of making jokes about it after the press screening. You could sort of feel it. Coming across Twitter, but there is something really menacing and sinister in a lot of Gowan's music. There's a snarl in the way he sings, and people just missed that at the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even the lyrics, when I first heard the song, I was like, was this written for Dennis? I mean, the lyric is these moonlight desires, they haunt me, which is kind of exactly what Dennis is going through. So the first time, and we had actually not shot to that song. We had shot to a different song, um, but it had uh, the exact same uh, beat. So I was able to swap in the Gowan track. But no, we had shot to a Pet Shop Boys song. Really? Yeah. Which one? It's a Sin. Okay. I mean, I can sort of... But you know what? Gowan is so much better. Oh my God, Gowan is so much better. Uh, you know, I, I've come to realize when filmmaking, if something isn't going your way and you are forced to go in a different direction, to just let go because it's probably for a reason and is going to be for the better. And I absolutely believe that about Gowan because we, I wanted this, I wanted it to sin and the Pet Shop Boys said no, not because of money or anything, but they didn't, now I'm just outing them. <laughs> anyway, they didn't want to be seen as an 80s band, so they didn't want to be in an 80s movie, which I'm like, it's a little late for that. Yeah. Um, but I think that they're touring with a, like a 2019 album. Um, so yeah, in my mind, I'm like, maybe it's kind of good for marketing to have your stuff out there, but... You think? Whatever, for them, it was a hard no specifically because it's a film set in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, my uh, music supervisor, uh, Evan Dubinsky, had mentioned Gowan. And so I started going through his catalog and found Moonlight Desires. Instantly was struck. I threw it on myself. I, I didn't even bring it to the edit. I threw it on my computer, did a little quick cut myself with it. 
and realized that there was no better song, which then became like this obsession of, can we get Gowan? We need to get Gowan. There's no other song. There's no other place to go. Um, And he said, yes. Um, And it worked. I actually sent, I, I sent him like an excerpt as well. I showed, um, sent it off for him to see. So there it is in the movie. And you've contributed to the Gowenaissance, which is absolutely a thing apparently. Ah, oh, it's incredible. I still dance to that song. <laughs> My thanks to Nicole Dorsey, whose first feature, Black Conflux, is waiting on a proper release after more than a year on the festival circuit thanks to this stupid plague. But it's worth the wait. And until then, you should check out Arlo Alone on Nicole's Vimeo channel. It stars Grace Kulwicki, friend of the show, and it is eerily relevant to the present moment. Also, thanks to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Nicole on Twitter at Nicole Ray Dorsey, all one word, and that's Ray with an E. And as I mentioned earlier, Smooth Talk is being released on Blu-ray and DVD by the Criterion Collection later this month in a new special edition featuring a 4K restoration and pretty much everything Nicole and I discussed in our conversation. Joyce Carolod's short story and the New York Times essay she wrote about the adaptation, the Joyce Chopra short films we mentioned, and some great new supplements as well. The movie's also likely to turn up on the Criterion channel once the discs are released on February 23rd. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to writing about film and television, I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts and now writing the new Now Streaming newsletter, which you can find on Substack. But you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or you've been enjoying the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.